Welcome to the Canola Watch podcast. My name is Jay Wetter. This podcast has a pest management theme with a heavy focus on integrated weed management, which we'll need more of to keep a lid on herbicide-resistant weeds. Recordings are from the fourth installment of the Canola Watch Winter Webinar Series, held live on February 24th. The webinar title was Pesticide Update with a Herbicide Focus. In this podcast, you will learn about new research in weed control, herbicide resistance, the impact of drought on weed control, tips for applying pesticides, and keeping your crop export ready. You'll hear from three different weed specialists, Rob Golden, Kim Brown-Livingston, and Ian Epp. Then we'll have a short Q&A as recorded during the webinar. One note. Because this was recorded as a webinar, presenters may refer to slides that you obviously can't see in the podcast. I've removed some of the more complicated references. To see the slides and the full recording, please go to youtube.com slash canola council and look for pesticide update with a herbicide focus. Rob Golden is a professor at the University of Manitoba focusing on crop and weed management. His research and interests include crop weed competition, volunteer canola management, crop and weed seed characteristics, plant spatial arrangement, and more. Here's Rob. I was asked to speak on three, what seem to be not related topics, but to me are very closely related uh, with respect to canola production. And, and one of those is canola stand densities. And as Jay mentioned, one of my interests is uh, plant spatial arrangement. A little bit about some new herbicide resistant weeds discovered in Western Canada. And uh, I've got a slide in there as well about herbicide performance and uh, trying to explain why herbicides sometimes, uh, particularly under adverse weather conditions, don't quite perform as well as we would like them to. So I'll start first with a little bit about, about spatial um, arrangement of plants. And of course, uh, this is uh, near and dear to my heart because of the facts plant competition and the ability of plants to compete with weeds, but also affects just straightforward crop production. So even under weed-free settings, spatial arrangement and um, particularly gaps in the crop canopy um, are, are very important for a couple of reasons. Number one, they allow weeds to germinate and, uh, and compete. Uh, and number two, those gaps in the canopy aren't really using sunlight. And so they can actually lead to reduced yields. And I'll talk a little bit about this, uh, these experiments we've been involved with, with uh, Steve Shirtliff. And uh, in my lab, we've done these in other crops as well. But uh, this is canola overhead shot of this, this suite of experiments we're doing at the moment, where we're looking at a whole range of densities and, and a whole suite of different row spacings. And you can obviously tell from this um, shot um, that uh, some of these stands of canola are much better able to compete with weeds or have built a much, much better solar collector with respect to forming yield than others. And uh, I'll share some of the data here very briefly. This is from the 2018 Carmen site, but the rest of them look very, very similar. And uh, the interesting thing here is that we notice, and we shouldn't really be surprised by that, is canola is an incredibly plastic plant. It can deal with a whole plethora of row spacings and, uh, and densities and still produce very equivalent yields or similar yields. What we've noticed, and uh, this goes across all the experiments and the data I've seen so far, is that narrow row spacings and all the way up to about 22 inches, give or take, 
um, have the same yield response curve. And so the canola plants are able to use that space. Although maybe from a weed management perspective, that might not always be the, the, the right choice to go with these extra wide row spaces. And the yield response curve basically looks like this. Uh, around 50 plants per meter squared, somewhere in there 50 to 60, we hit the plateau of the yield response curve. And any extra plants um, over here will buy us some biological insurance. And I think that's very important from weed competition perspective, even from you know, even looking at, at other biotic stresses, insects, diseases, as well as, um, as, well as, uh, as abiotic stresses, such as frost or drought, um, these bias a little bit of uh, a cushion with respect to maintaining performance if something happens. Um, if we're operating close to what I always say, the cliff of this curve, and, and, and you know, some people certainly are, and I'll show you in a minute that it's probably more than, than we would like to see, we're operating close to the cliff here, anything that goes bad and uh, we can't fix it very quickly with either pesticide or some other input, uh, and we're going to be sliding off that yield curve very, very quickly, and we're not going to attain maximum yields. Um, the wider row spacings, 30 inches, just don't work for canola. Uh, it's just too wide a row, and they simply aren't able to compensate for that. But it's quite surprising how well they're able to compensate uh, over this broad range of row spaces as, as it is. Now, if we look at these stands themselves, we see that uh, they look very different. Now, here we've got a seven and a half inch row spacing stand and uh, there's not a lot of fair ground to be seen. So from a weed, weed competition perspective, this is, this is fantastic. On the other hand, when we get to 22 and a half inches or 15 inch row spacing, we can still pull off some fantastic yields, but we need very, very good weed control here. And the herbicide is going to have to work a whole lot harder to manage the weeds in these stands than it does in this, in this uh, type of scenario. And I'll, I'll throw this out right now. I, you know, I've been thinking about this for a long, long time, but we've had canola with uh, herbicide-resistant canola systems as long as corn and soybean have been available. Yet the number of herbicide-resistant weeds that we can really pinpoint to selecting for in these canola systems have been virtually nil. Uh, whereas in the corn and soybean systems, um, there are a lot of herbicide resistant weeds that are attributed to the herbicide use in those systems. And I would argue it's because canola is so competitive and because we still are producing it like this type of a crop rather than that type of a crop that that's really um, made canola a very sustainable system with respect to herbicide resistance. Now, not only is uh, the spacing between rows very important, but uniformity within rows is very important as well. And that speaks to the germination question. Uh, and we, that's still a big question that needs to be answered at some point. But if we look at uh, these studies where we looked at poles in rows with Yan Tai, uh, essentially what we found is that you need to be operating near 80 plants per meter squared to maximize your yield potential under non-uniform non stands. Uh, in high yielding situations, you have to get away with a whole lot less. Um, not so in load yielding situations, but um, in these non-uniform stands, we do need more plants per meter squared to make up for that shortfall. Uh, the reason that uh, I point out these wider row spacings, there is uh, some interest in going to wider row spacings in canola as there are in, in other crops. The challenge with that is, uh, and, and a point to our, our discoveries of the first uh, glyphosate resistant kochia that was found in Manitoba, 
We thought it was going to come in from the west where it would be much more prominent, but in reality, the first survey of uh, Roundup resistant kochia in Manitoba showed us that it uh, occurred in two wide row crops. One was a cornfield by uh, Elm Creek, and the other one was a soybean field close to the US border. And as you can see here, these are injured plants. Um, and uh, they, of course, have full access to light. If the canopy doesn't close, these are going to reproduce, produce some seed, and they're going to multiply the resistant seed bank. If, on the other hand, if we have a, a canopy that closes here completely, these plants will be choked out by the better performing soybean, canola, whatever crop plants they might be, and they won't be able to reproduce. Uh, so there'll be no seed production, and the crop is doing its share of the weed control as we would like it to. Couple of notes on uh, new herbicide resistant weeds that we need to keep an eye out for. Uh, some of you have probably heard about these already. Water hampers in Manitoba now, here's the map. And um, Kim will probably talk a little bit more about identification of these two weeds. And Palmer amaranth was discovered in Manitoba in, in one field last summer. These are both in the amaranth family. Uh, they are very troublesome weeds. Water hemp has been in North Dakota for quite a while and it's resistant not only to glyphosate, but a whole host of things. In uh, Illinois, I think they are testing now or may have even confirmed a single population of water hemp that's resistant to eight different modes of action. So there really isn't a lot of, uh, there aren't a lot of control options left with a population like that. And the uh, Palmer amaranth is its more aggressive cousin from the Southern states. Maybe during the question section, we can talk a little bit more about uh, why and how it came uh, to the northern states, uh, but I'll leave it at that for now. The other weed of uh, concern, of course, across Western Canada is glyphosate uh, or Roundup resistant kochia. And uh, not only is all the kochia in Western Canada resistant to, uh, to group twos, uh, a good portion of it now is resistant to glyphosate, and that portion has increased quite dramatically from one survey to the next. Uh, but now in Alberta, they've also discovered dicamba and fluoroxicure resistance. So we've got three-way resistance in, uh, in kochia. Shouldn't really be a big surprise because way back in the day when I was a poor summer student, I'm not gonna date myself. But uh, at that point, uh, when the first flush of herbicide resistance went through Manitoba, we were already looking at group four resistance in kochia. It's, uh, it's always been a little tricky um, controlling kochia with group fours, and so resistance is never far away. Now that we are out of other groups and we're relying more heavily on the group fours, the uh, resistance levels are increasing. And that certainly is a concern as groups are disappearing with respect to being able to manage that weed. Um, last but not least, in terms of newly discovered weeds, uh, those of you in Alberta have probably seen this already, and those um, who have listened to Charles Geddes talk have seen this already, but um, and that I think he presented it at the MAC conference as well. But this is the newest find in Western Canada, our first glyphosate-resistant grass. Um, we were always expecting it to be wild oats. Luckily, it's not. It's uh, downy brome. And that was discovered in uh, southern Alberta somewhere. I don't quite know the cropping history. Uh, but uh, this population is 10 times more resistant to glyphosate than the susceptible population. So. Uh, Again, it's a potentially serious challenge with respect to managing this weed with, with glyphosate alone, obviously. And last but not least, I'll speak a little bit about herbicide performance and, um, and, uh, and, and weather, adverse weather conditions. Uh, herbicide doses and rates are designed to work under mostly normal conditions. And so sometimes when we run into these adverse weather conditions, things just don't quite perform as we expect them to. 
So we've got some percentages here from a study that looked at radio-labeled herbicide and of 100% that was applied, 65% never hit the target plant. So only 34% of the herbicide hit the target plant. Um, of those 100%, only 5% went into the plant and only 2.2% got to the target site. And that was enough and is enough to cause uh, the plants to die and do the biological effect. So that the, the losses along the way are quite dramatic. Now, if we're talking about, uh, and the, uh, the other thing to point out here is that 28.6% of the total herbicide after three days was still found on the leaf surface. And, and the real big barrier for herbicides to get into the plant is the leaf surface. The leaf surface is made up of waxes, the cuticle, the plant puts those waxes on to prevent water loss. Unfortunately, most herbicides have an incredibly tough time getting through that cuticle. Um, and under dry conditions, a couple of things that work against that, and that is the cuticle becomes much thicker, so there's more wax to go through for the herbicide. And if it does get into the plant, the plants are also not growing actively. And if the plants aren't growing actively, then uh, the herbicide isn't able because most herbicides rely on, on plant growth or affect plant growth. If the plant isn't really growing, the herbicide can't do its job. And so oftentimes it's sequestered away in the plant or it's detoxified. And so there's a couple of these, these very important things, the thicker cuticle and the reduced plant growth that, that can affect herbicide performance under these adverse weather conditions or dry conditions. In wet conditions, it's the exact opposite. The cuticle is really thin, the plant is growing like mad, and so under wet conditions, we can often see or will often see uh, crop injury uh, at our normal herbicide dose because more herbicide gets into the plant. Um, we'll see what this year brings. This spring, uh, it's uh, certainly in southern Manitoba, we've got a lot of snow. We might be looking at hyperactive herbicides this spring. It's kind of hard to tell. But uh, yeah, that's uh, all I wanted to say for now and uh, pass it on to the next presenter. Thank you. That was Rob Golden. The next speaker is Kim Brown Livingston, weed specialist with Manitoba Agriculture and Rural Development. Here's Kim. Um, I wanted to talk about um, weed control. Uh, kind of what's going on in Manitoba right now and just a little bit of what's coming at us in the future. And I think weed control in the future, I know we're always looking for new herbicides. It, we've had it fairly easy in the last little while. Um, you know, we've had some really great herbicides. They work really well. We're just, you know, our mode of action or our, or our is just to, our mode of action is to pull into that field with a sprayer and spray and we do a really good job um, taking care of the weeds. Uh, we've got a lot of herbicide resistance on the way. Um, it's not a matter of if, but when it's coming. Um, we're not going to be able to continue to use a lot of the herbicides that we're using right now. Is there new herbicides coming? Not right now. Um, I know I think everybody would like to think there's a silver bullet coming, but there may not be. Um, realistically, there isn't one. There might be, but realistically right now, we don't have anything on the horizon that's going to be, uh, like I said, that silver bullet. So we really need to look at going back to the basics. We need to look at integrated weed management, and that encompasses a number of things. That's, you know, a, a lot of different things. And uh, But the biggest thing is to grow really good competitive crops. Ultimately, our goal should be to to reduce the amount of weeds that see an in-crop spray. So the less weeds we're spraying, the less weeds that, that get that herbicide, that's, that lessens our chance for resistance to develop. And we just don't, we want to reduce that weed seed bank. We don't want that weed seed bank to keep growing um, in, 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 our, in, our, in our fields and especially the resistant weed seed bank because um, that's just you know, a whole lot of hurt coming down the road. 
So this is the, the case for wild oat resistance in across the prairie provinces. Um, Manitoba, though, we are uh, number one. We have 42% uh, of the fields surveyed um, had both group one and group two resistant wild oats. So that is, uh, um, you know, something that, that is increasing every year. You can see from the original surveys done um, down here. Uh, hang on a sec, I'll try and get a better... Uh, pointer for you. Um, you can see the original surveys down here done down in the 2000s and you can see every time we've done a survey it's growing and growing and so we will be doing a survey here in 2020 in, in 2022 and you know I fully expect these numbers to to get a little higher as well. Um, when we look at then looking at glyphosate resistance now this is an older slide um, but the amount of uh, species that have become resistant to glyphosate over the years is climbing. Um, we had glyphosate, you know, registered in the 70s there. Some of the earliest weeds to show resistance were these amaranthus species, and these are the ones that Rob Golden was talking about, this tuberculatus, that's our hemp, or sorry, our... Um, our, our water hemp, um, Amaranthus pomeri, that's Palmer amaranth. Here's our kochia uh, that, you know, came, became resistant here in the mid 2000s. And this also in Manitoba, uh, we have Amaranthus hybridus, that's a smooth pigweed. We have that here in Manitoba. It is on our noxious weeds act. So that is something that we are keeping an eye on. Um, it looks very much like many of the other pigweeds. In Manitoba, we have um, uh, the noxious weeds act. We have our tier one weeds, our weeds that are not yet present or present in very um, small amounts are in very uh, isolated areas and we are uh, the three amaranth species that we are worried about are tier one weeds so they are uh, when they're when we find them in Manitoba they must be eradicated that is the law um, and and for good reason so our tier one weeds are the really really bad ones um, and these are the ones that we do not want to uh, get a hold to take a you know uh, to, to take root here in Manitoba and 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 get gain presence here in Manitoba we don't want them at all so those are the ones that we're very concerned about. And, you know, for many reasons, herbicide resistance is, is the biggest one, um, simply because they're resistant to so many different herbicide groups, especially the water hemp and the Palmer amaranth. This just shows you water hemp. Uh, four days after emergence versus 16 days after emergence in the back. So these weeds grow extremely rapidly. And when Rob was talking about closing that canopy, not having bare ground, this is why. When you look at Palmer amaranth there on the right-hand side of the screen, uh, four days after emergence, it's already a couple of inches tall. And by 16 days after emergence, like that's not even, you know, that's just past two weeks. Um, that stuff is halfway to your knees already. And so very aggressive weeds. And the problem is um, in certain crops, there's just no products to use anymore or, or very, very limited products um, once it shows up in crops. So the idea is to not have these weeds show up to get a post spray. We don't want to be spraying these in crop. We want to not have them grow or we want to have them taken care of, you know, using a, a, a pre-spray with some residual, that type of thing. We just don't want to be trying to spray some of these weeds in crop and we definitely don't want them going to seed. At this point, Kim put up a weed management checklist from an article by Hugh Becky and Neil Harker. The article is called Top 10 Herbicide-Resistant Weed Management Practices, and you can quickly find it through a Google search. So this is from a paper from Hugh Becky and Neil Harker. And basically, if we're looking at dealing with herbicide-resistant weed management, we've got some strategies here, um, the top, you know, from growing from top 10 down to number one, uh, maintain a database. It's an invaluable reference. You have to know your data, know what was sprayed, know what was grown, all that type of thing. You've got to keep good records, and particularly when you're picking up rented land or when land is changing hands, you have to know that. Number nine, strategic tillage, if, when, or where, or when needed. Um, this is something that we're going to 
to have to really evaluate. We've uh, struggled with this in the last couple of years because it's been very dry. Uh, but going forward, you know, this is something that we're going to have to use. This is a tool we have to be able to use. Um, field and site-specific weed management, one size might not fit all. And really, we can't have that one spray across the farm for all the wheat, one spray for all the corn. You know, we need to do, um, we need to be much more specific than uh, if we can. Weed sanitation borders are important. That will slow our herbicide resistant dispersal. Um, in crop wheat, using selective herbicide rotation, that's to combat uh, non-target site resistance. The herbicide group rotation, avoiding back-to-back -back in crop group one and group two. Again, this is specific for wheat when we're talking about group one and group two wild oat resistance. Um, herbicide mixtures and sequences are better than rotations. We still want you to use rotations, but we want you to use mixtures and sequences as well. So it's going to get a lot more complex. There's going to be a lot more stuff in the tank. And again, this is where record keeping comes into play. We've got to know what we're looking at for um, rotational cropping and that type of thing going forward. Um, pre and post herbicide scouting, know your enemy. So you're in there before, you're spraying the proper chemistry, but you're in there after as well, not just once, but several times throughout the growing season to see, you know, what came through or what came later, that type of thing, and know what's coming at you next year for weeds. Um, competitive crops and practices that promote competitiveness um, and natural biological control, where, where that's appropriate, that's, you know, a little harder to do in some of our crops, but, you know, there is still some, there's definitely merit in that. Um, and number one, um, top practice is crop diversity. So these top two, this competitive crops and practices and this crop diversity, we've got to keep this in mind because we do not have the sprays to rely on anymore. Um, next slide, please. If we look at our, um, this is a study by Neil Harker, and uh, this is basically where they looked at doing uh, some uh, uh, very poor practices, which would be something like a continuous barley rotation versus a better rotation, which would be something like barley, canola, barley, peas. So a four-year rotation versus something like continuous barley. Within those rotations, they also looked at the effects of using short crops versus tall crops, like short cultivars versus tall cultivars, and also um, low seeding rates versus high seeding rates. So at the bottom end of the spectrum, when you look in this continuous barley, if you're looking at wild oat biomass at maturity, your worst case scenario is a continuous barley, a short variety, and a low seeding rate. Uh, you have you know, a, a, a large amount of biomass at maturity. Um, even within that continuous barley, if you mix it up and you go to a taller cultivar and a higher seeding rate, you drastically drop if you look at this green bar here and this continuous barley, you drastically drop the biomass. And when you have a better rotation, it all drops again. Like you're looking at a real drop in the amount of weeds that are in those crops when you start changing things up and doing a lot more management. Um, if we go, so again, in this case, you know, um, if we look at all factors, if we have an increased seeding rate and a tall cultivar and a good um, and a good uh, rotation, you're looking at a 70 times reduction in wild oat biomass. I mean, that's huge. That's so much more wild oats to be spraying and less wild oats to be developing further herbicide resistance. Basically, we need to look at, it's gonna be a lot more management. It's not going to be as easy as pulling into the field with a sprayer and spraying something and pulling out and the weed control's done. It's a lot more management. It's a lot more moving pieces. It's a lot more pieces of the, uh, in the puzzle.
There's a lot of info available, Mantle Agriculture, MASC, industry webinars such as this one, but your relationship with your agronomist, your industry people and your retail, that is crucial for planning this year and onward because it's going to get a lot more complex. It's, it's just not going to get any easier. Um, and a final plug, our provincial weed surveys, they're crucial for gathering data on weed trends and resistant weeds. And again, we are going to be doing one this summer. We're planning about 700 fields across the province. So we are looking for uh, people uh, to do some surveying as well. If that's something that anybody is interested in, uh, we'll have some information out about that a little bit uh, closer to the survey date. Um, but we will be across Manitoba surveying and we will be following that up with a, a resistant weed survey as well uh, closer to harvest time or right at harvest time. So expect to see us um, across Manitoba doing that. And with that, um, I'd like to thank you and I'll be around for questions. That was Kim Brown Livingston. The final speaker is Ian Epp, agronomy specialist with the Canola Council of Canada. Ian is the Canola Council's sustainability lead and assists in public affairs regarding pesticides. His areas of interest include weed control and herbicide resistance. Here's Ian. All right, so we're going to shift gears just a little bit or think something that maybe in some ways it feels like a gear shift, but really this is part of in the new norm, as Kim was talking about, where weed control is uh, more complicated. And we start talking about rotations and sequencing and as she mentioned, record keeping. I think this is an important part to keep in the back of your mind as you are planning out your new and complicated, or maybe more complicated weed control or just rotating in different things. How do we keep our, our canola export ready? Uh, and so I'm gonna talk specifically about uh, residues and um, international implications, the agreements you're signing with an elevator. There's all sorts of criteria in there. So how do we get the effective weed control that we need that we've already heard some top tips from Kim and Rob, but how do we also make sure we're meeting all those requirements when we go to sell our canola, it's good to go into the system. So a lot of the work that the Canola Council focuses on, part of the work that I'm a part of is resolving and preventing uh, market access barriers. I highlighted preventing there. Ideally, if it's all going well, a lot of the work we're doing, the vast majority of the work we're doing is proactive, making sure that we can not have uh, market issues. So, you know, a new herbicide is registered or a new, uh, or a rate change, something like that, something new is re registered. We try to have all of our export countries on board and on the same page as to what the residues look like, they're acceptable before it comes to the farmers, right? So when you get a new product, you can just use it. That doesn't always happen. Uh, and sometimes we'll talk, I'll talk a little bit about our Keep It Clean program and why we might have restrictions or we might have to have some more education, but the vast majority of the work we do is proactive so that we're trying to give farmers access to all the tools and make sure that uh, rules in other countries are not limiting our access to the tools to grow canola. The, one of the most important things is using those pe acceptable pesticides. It has to be registered on the crop. So right, you go to your crop protection guide, as Kim was talking about the weed book, you have to make sure that that's registered for canola. That's key. If, if it's not registered for canola, I guaranteed we don't have the proper MRLs in place in other countries, and they will be testing for random other, they have a whole suite of pesticides they test for. And if it's not registered in Canada, we haven't done that proactive work to make sure we have an MRL in place in those markets, and then we have, we run into big problems. So we're talking about using registered pesticides. Um, registered in Canada, that means that we've done some work to make sure it's going to be, unless we've given some sort of specific awareness or notice out to the industry, we've done some work internationally to make sure that that, that works. And then the, the second one is using them correctly. So, you know, you have a registered pesticide, but we need to be using the correct rate and the correct timing. Both of those are critical on what the actual residue is. And so the data that we work with is if you apply the highest or the, the correct rates, so whatever's on the label, that highest rate, and you apply it at the 
anytime in that window, it's going to, the residue is going to be acceptable. We can work with that. That's what kind of what we've built. We've done all that proactive work on. So if you need more information on that, the spray to swath calculator, it's quick, type in your pesticide and it'll tell you how far back from uh, swathing or from combining you need to work. You can find the spray to swath calculator at keepitclean.ca. Look under the tools tab. Now with some of our herbicides, it's not always the biggest deal, but again, if you're going with a late application of something worth checking, uh, especially insects, you get a random late season insect outbreak, grasshoppers, and you haven't seen grass, I've been sprayed for grasshoppers in 10 years, and you go to get something out of the shed or you go to your retail and you pick up something, there's can be some pretty significant difference uh, pre-harvest intervals between like 24 hours or three days, which isn't too bad, up to 21 days. And that can get pretty close at the end there. So making sure that anytime you're picking up something in your shed before it gets in your sprayer, make sure that pre-harvest interval works so that the residues are gonna be fine uh, once it leaves the farm. I'll talk a little bit about glyphosate. Glyphosate uh, is the poster child for a lot of things. It's the most used chemist uh, herbicide in Western Canada. Uh, globally, there's a lot of scrutiny under it. Uh, and we use it, it, we use it a lot in canola production, right? We're, depending on what kind of canola, you might have a couple different herbicide passes. Hopefully you're tank mixing something else now for some better IPM, but getting that timing right is really critical with glyphosate, especially that pre-harvest interval. 50 to 60% seed color change, really important. With glyphosate, with some pesticides, applying too late means that we get higher residues. With glyphosate, it's actually a bit the opposite. We don't, because glyphosate translocates so well, we want to make sure that plant is far enough along that only that only a little bit of glyphosate is going to make it to the seed. If we apply too early, we're going to get really high residues. Um, and then, so that's pretty straightforward. Swathing timing, we're pretty good at staging our canola and you want to get it right for weed control. It's good for agronomy. It's good for that. The other thing is, in this case, if you have a field like this, what do you do? How do you stage this field? It's got a bit of this going that. It's obviously not a pre-harvest timing, but it's not very uniform. So again, we're talking the least mature parts of those. So especially in a year like, this guy obviously had some, uh, probably a drill problem or something, some depth, something going on. Or this year we had uh, quite a bit of drought. The canola was here, there, and everywhere. Again, we might have to manage areas of that field differently, but we have to be, but if we're going to try to uh, manage one field as a whole unit, we're looking at that least mature part. Because again, those residues can get really high really quickly. Um, so I guess a couple of things on the Keep It Clean program, we are fortunate again this year to not have any major pesticides on our do not use. Uh, previously, we've talked about Quinclorac. It was registered in Canada, but we didn't want, we couldn't use it because we didn't have MRLs in place. We are fortunate again this year to have MRLs in place for all of the rest, registered in-crop pesticides, which is a great place to be. Um, the only one that I'll keep on, and we've, had, we've talked about this for years, is keeping malathion out of your bins for storage, right? You can't treat your bins with malathion and then store canola in there. Um, Again, not a huge issue. We don't run into a lot of problems, but again, malathion's not registered for that. So we don't have MRLs in place. So we can get detects and we do occasionally get the odd detect on this. So just something to keep in mind. If, you're, if you have bin problems, you you're treating bins, you had some insect problems or something, make sure those bins are marked. They don't go to canola. Um, but other than that, we're fortunate again this year to not have any products on our registry. So just a quick summary of the things I talked about. We have no product restrictions for 2022. More countries are using their own MRL standards. That, that is a growing trend. Um, and they're testing more often and they're testing, they have very sensitive testing. So any little bits of uh, residue that's not accounted for, they will find. So applying a registered pesticide at the right rate at the right time has never been more critical. As you're, And I know it's complicated as your weed control program is getting more complicated with tank mix partners. The amount of active ingredients you're applying is probably skyrocketing. 
but it's really critical that record keeping uh, and just checking to make sure the rate right, right rate and the right time is really, really critical. I think I'll uh, end there. That brings us to the questions and answers part of the webinar. The first question is based on Kim's recommendation to improve weed management with a competitive crop. I asked her how she would modify the recommendation when growing conditions don't allow for a vigorous lush and competitive crop. Honestly, you do the best you can and you still have to be, I think you just have to have the right um, targets in mind. I think last year, if we would known it was so dry or we knew, we knew we were going into some drier, a drier year. So, you know, we cut down a bit on our fertilizer. We cut down a bit. Uh, we have to have realistic expectations of that crop. And, and yes, last year was, it is very hard when you don't have the right growing conditions to grow a good crop. There's really not a lot you can do. Uh, you just do the best you can. Having said that, we didn't have a lot of weed growth either in some of those crops. We did have some weed growth later in the year. That was a different topic. We had a lot of weed growth very late in the year, along with some volunteer crops regrowing. Again, those are weeds because we didn't want them growing at that point. Um, but during the crop year, when it's that dry and the crop is challenged, we also didn't have a lot of weed issues too. So that, you know, that was a bit of a good thing as well. But it is really challenging. Last year was exceptional. We really, you know, that was not a normal year. In a normal year, we should have a lot more tools and a lot more uh, ability to grow a good competitive crop. Rob, anything to add there in terms of planning for 2022? And if it is a, another dry spring, just say, um, any, any different approach you might recommend? Just a couple of things to add to that. Um, well, at least my backyard 2022 is shaping up to be really nice. Uh, I hope the rest of the province looks like that too. Um, these ultra dry conditions are, are really challenging and, and, my, and, and particularly for canola. Canola is a funny crop because it really has no um, internal mechanisms to control drought stress very well. Brassica napus doesn't. So what it does is it uses as much water as it possibly can and then it starts dropping leaves. Um, and so in, in those conditions, I think the best advice is, is plant canola as early as possible and get it to use that water. Um, I think late seeded canola certainly did very bad last year. We've had, we had a seeding state trial and, you know, at Carmen, the early seeded did the best because it just had access to the most amount of water. But it, it is, of all the crops we grow in Western Canada, one of the least well adapted to droughts. And so it, it tends to hit that crop a little harder than others. Um, so early seeding and, um, you know, respectable densities. Rob, I'm going to come back to you on this uh, this cuticle, this thick cuticle, but I want to go to Ian uh, with that first question. Ian, um, anything you'd add to what Kim and Rob said about tough conditions and uh, weed management? An extra inch of rain at the end of seeding just covers a lot of mistakes. The little mistakes that happen, you know, we can do a lot of things not great and then get away with a great crop. And some years we do that. And some years that bails us out when, you know, stuff happens in the field, things don't go down quite right. These dry years, there's just no recovery. Every little mistake shows. So whether that's a little too high of a seed place fertilizer rate and suddenly you were planning for the nice density that Rob told you, but then you burnt two plants per square foot and now you're down to four or five plants per square foot, you know, those kind of things, um, they really matter on a dry year. In a wet year, we can kind of get away. Or you're seeding a little too shallow, a little too depth, a little uneven, your trash isn't great. Some years you would get away with that. So maximizing all those little things, little things you can start planning right now, make sure that drill is, the openers are good, you're in great shape so we can maximize every little difference. That's gonna give canola a bit of more of a competitive edge 
Um, you know, so we can get in there, seed early, do all those right things, you know, banding your fertilizer that's not hurting your canola, but maybe we can keep it closer to the canola so we're not fertilizing the weeds. Any of those small little differences when moisture is key. And then early weed control. We talk about early weed control every year. It's, it's boring, but it's really critical, especially if you have some overwintering winter annuals or perennials that somehow escaped control last year. They're big, they're mean, they're using a lot of moisture early season, and that's moisture in your rooting zone that your tiny little canola needs. So early weed control, I would say, I would sacrifice those later flushes of whatever might come if we get a rain or not. Get the early weeds out and we'll worry about the later weeds later. Those early ones, those are the ones that are yielding, taking all that moisture away from us, and those are the ones that are taking all the yield away from us. So it just, you know, not normal weed messaging, but just everything is on a way bigger scale. It's magnified under these tougher conditions. Yeah, good. Thanks, Ian. Okay, Rob, to you on the cuticles in that waxy layer and, and getting through there is, there, is there something you can add to the tank or are there herbicides that are particularly good or better in those situations? Any practical agronomy tips there? Well, um, that's a good question. Um, and uh, yeah, so the, the herbicides that are naturally better at, at getting through that cuticle are, are emulsifiable EC formulations because the active ingredient in those formulations is one that's capable of, um, and the reason it isn't an EC formulation is one that, uh, that, that's non-polar, so it can get through that waxy layer. Of course, not all things come as ECs. Glyphosate will never come as an EC, but glyphosate has all these surfactants added. Now, the surfactant mixtures are, of course, um, designed to deal with average conditions. And when we get a little bit outside average, you know, it's, it's really hard to tell because there's very little research experience in those conditions, too, as to where they might fail or which one might be affected the most. Um, the cuticle is a funny thing. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and with respect to uptake, I just want to throw this out, out there, too. Um, herbicide uptake through the cuticle is, is the quickest midday because that's when the sun is shining on that waxy layer and that's when it's the softest. So if we can actually apply the herbicide midday, if it's not one that's photodegraded, then uh, we can actually enhance uptake. Now, what happens in Western Canada midday? The wind usually howls like crazy, right? And so uh, it kind of works against us. But, but just from that, that basic chemistry side of things, um, that, 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 that's known to work, but we don't always have the opportunity to, to deal with that best. Could there be, are there any additional things, you know, should you play with the surfactant mixtures? Uh, I would recommend no, because those, those things are, are, you know, based on large number of trials. And uh, anytime I've played with surfactants, things have gone terribly wrong. So I suggest not to. Okay, good. Well, thanks, Rob. Okay, so one last quick one to Kim, and then we'll get your final words. Um, so Kim, you mentioned in your presentation that maybe we would get to this to, in the Q&A. So I just wanted to give you a minute to to talk about Palmer amaranth, all water hemp, um, and some of these other real scary herbicide resistant weeds. And um, what would be the what would be the message about those that you'd like to get across? We they cannot come to Manitoba. Well, they probably will come here. When they come here, we have got to get on them and get rid of them. Um, anybody on Twitter or uh, following anything, unless you're living under a rock, I'm sure you've seen some of the stories from Palmer Amaranth and water hemp in the States. That is multiple herbicide resistance, anywhere from seven to nine different groups and cross resistance within those groups. I think Rob mentioned an eight-way eight cross resistant uh, population. We 
when we, if weeds like that get here, we will not be able to control them. Luckily in our canola and our wheat, um, they've done very well. Like we, th those crops do very well. We don't see that weed, even on fields where we know that weed has been in the past, it's been eradicated, but we know there's probably still some seed in the ground. It doesn't seem to show up. So growing a really good competitive crop, like a canola or a wheat, um, we don't see that crop. We start, or we don't see that weed. Sorry. We don't see those weeds show up. We do start to see it though in our row crops. Again, what, what Rob, talked about with with wide rows no competition um not closing in that row um we see it where our options are a lot more limited in crop to go after those weeds so we're really heavily reliant on pre herbicides like pre-seed herbicides or pre-plant herbicides um, that have residual so that those weeds don't even come up in the first place and a lot of our farmers are not using those products yet they tend to be expensive they're weather dependent we need to have some moisture for some of them uh to to, to work well and so you know where it, it's we need to shift how we look at um, managing those crops for when these weeds start to show up so having said that though in manitoba with our noxious weeds that they are tier one weeds and they must be eradicated when they get here so we are watching for them and when we know about them and uh, we they have to go and we don't want them here we don't want them here and setting seed every population we have found in manitoba has been herbicide resistant so they come preloaded with herbicide resistance and it's a, it's going to be a problem if they get here so we just can't let them get established here. Yeah, I, I interviewed a, a weed specialist from down in the central United States about hand weeding. I think it might have been in Missouri because uh, that was there's no other way to, to control these weeds. So they hired people to go out there and pull them. Okay, 30 seconds to each you. We'll go Ian, uh, Kim, Rob. We'll go in reverse order. Ian? Yeah, my, my parting two cents. Weed control is really important in the fields. That's what we focus on as farmers. Just make sure you're not hurting yourself after you've grown your canola. You've done everything right to maximize your yield. Make sure the canola that hits the bin is ready to go when it gets to the market. It's pretty quick. Just need some good record keeping, some quick guessing, and or some quick checking, and then you're off to the races. Thanks, Ian. Kim? Yeah, I just, uh, you know what, it's just going to be a lot more management going forward, a lot more long-term planning. Having said that, plans do change. Just a lot of record keeping, a lot of planning, working with your industry, working with your retailer, working with your agronomist, working with those. We've got to have a long-term plan. We need diversity and we need to grow really good competitive crops. We want to see as few weeds as possible getting that post in crop spray. We don't want that. If we reduce the amount of weeds getting that spray, we reduce the amount of weeds setting seed and we reduce the amount of weeds that can potentially become herbicide resistant in the future. Okay. Thanks, Kim. And Rob. Yeah. Um, great discussion today. And um, last, the only thing I would add is let's, let's not forget about um, biological risk management. And that is, you know, getting our crop established to be a healthy, well competitive crop that can take a hit or two from the odd um, be it a biotic stress or abiotic stress, where we don't have to run to pesticides uh, right away, or or any of these uh, these other uh, control measures. Um, I think we've uh, that that's kind of you know with with increasing seed cost that the, the biological risk management has taken a bit of a back burner, and I think that's, that's my message here is is try not to forget about that. That's a very effective tool. Thank you, Rob, Kim, and Ian. Also, thank you to the host organizations of this webinar series, SAS Canola, Alberta Canola, Manitoba Canola Growers, and the Canola Council of Canada. You can watch all segments of this webinar, including the slides, at youtube.com slash canola council.
For lots more on pest management and weed management specifically, please check out the excellent online resource at canolaencyclopedia.ca. Also, please register for upcoming Canola Watch webinars to hear the content firsthand and participate in the live Q&A. Find details at your Provincial Canola Association website or at canolacouncil.org in the Events section under the About Us tab. This has been a Canola Watch podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jay Wetter.